Hello, my name is Michelle Yonachan, the Wandering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie and Kent. And a flag for us too here. If you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate us on the app you use to tune in. We want our guests to be read more and heard more and strong ratings help make that happen. Thanks in advance. I'm joined by the poet and also chair of the Royal Society of Literature, by the way, Daljit Nagra to discuss his new book, Indium. It follows collections of poetry that include British Museum, his reflections on heritage, legacy, and what some might consider unshakable institutions. No such thing, right? Another collection is Tipu Sultan's incredible white man eating tiger toy machine. There are three exclamation marks after that. And I obviously just wanted to read that title out loud. And his debut, Look, We Have Coming to Dover, which matters as much now as it did when you wrote it, Dulgit but also long before and forever into the future, probably too. Daljit, welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. It's a pleasure to be here, and that's a lovely introduction. And I do hope that the Dover will be read in years to come, but you never know these things. Well, let's try and make that happen. Um, yours, Daljit, is it's a rare talent, I think, that you make one laugh, or make me laugh out loud, and you also make me want to cry, sometimes both at the same time. Can you explain that funny mix of reactions you managed to stir up? Well, you know, when you first start writing, you don't know what's going to come, do you? And you know that yourself. You don't know what tone's going to come at you. And you start thinking about things. And then suddenly a kind of a certain type of mood comes. And I guess for my first book on, I was really writing about those kind of migrant rural Indians who came and worked in factories. So I was trying to capture some of the, the emotions that they convey to each other. So often, you know, after a day at factory, they would talk about events and often they talk about humorous events. So I was trying to capture some of that humorous tone, I think. I'm not sure if I was consciously trying to be funny, um, but the, the poems ended up being funny because maybe in the act of writing, um, to some degree, you're trying to amuse yourself. And at some point, I think my most famous poem, my, my first collection, Sing Song, which is a GCSE standard poem now for a few years, um, I wrote that one as a, quite a low ebb, and I, I want to write something to cheer myself up, which is a really weird thing to say. So that came from a kind of pursuit of happiness uh, through creativity. And my latest book, Indium, I wrote that really at the start of lockdown. I started in February 2020, and then I wrote most of it in the subsequent months during the first phase of lockdown. And I really started thinking about how humour can help us cope in times of difficulty, because... You know, people use all sorts of humour, whether it be wit or just throw away uh, banana skin jokes, you know, full range. So it's, it partly feels essential to the human condition to seek to squeeze out the human things. Do you think that sense of mischief, though, ever mutes the pain? Or, or is actually that the point? Oh, that's interesting, yeah. I think mischief itself is a ha-ha, isn't it? Ha-ha, maybe you know, the questioning laugh. And I, I quite like that kind of cheeky, childish kind of quality, which may have adult wit in it. Um, that's partly aspiration, I think. And I was really aware early on, like that kind of, you know, coming from background do where 
lots of people aren't necessarily educated. And there's this kind of humour, a wit, which isn't a bookish one. And I want to inject the bookish wit as well into my writing um, through mischief to playing with things like the empire. Because when you go head on with brutality, uh, you're better off doing that non-fiction thing. Uh, I don't think art or poetry is the right place because uh, you end up sounding maybe angry or one-dimensional and it's not nuanced or, you know, textured. So it's finding a way to layer the thing up and play with the reader. I'm really aware, as I'm sure you are, if, if you start attacking Empire and Raj, people just switch off. They're not going to read the work. There's that as well, isn't it? Try and get under people's skin. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, we're turning to Indium, just out. It's it's a mock epic, if I can call it that. The, the backdrop is a gathering of Indic heritage poets, plus there's a director and camera operator who offer these quick sides of conversation while they're documenting the poet's recitals. And the blurb on the back of the book is, is a three-line extract from one of your poems inside as follows. Hail all committee, muses, etc. Council must take arms against the dulce et decorum of conflicts to blot onwards in pure English or rage for Indians. You have such a distinctive well voice. Well read. Well, well written. You have such a um, distinctive voice, Indulja, and you could even call it a vernacular of your own, this blending of languages. Is, is that how you think naturally and, and effortlessly, or is it more constructed and, and more put together than that? Um, I would say it often comes at first draft in that I'm trying to find the right material which will suit the sensibility of that language I want in writing. So I, I'm always looking for the right subject matter, knowing that I want to blend English-Indian. So I, I call Indians this mixture of the English-Indian idioms and the Indian idioms, as it were, or to give this the poem a feeling of these two cultures mixed together. Um, so I think it, quite often it comes quite naturally, this sort of, I'm looking for areas where I can be stimulated in my imagination. So playing with language seems to be the form of stimulus. So when, quite often when I write standard English poems, and I do write them every now and then, uh, I, I don't really feel that alive. So I feel like I'm just uh, mimicking Englishness, and which is fine, you know, writers of colour want to do that, it's not a problem to me. Um, and that, that's that's not to be uh, denigrated. It's just to me, it doesn't feel true to me. My first language was Punjabi, and so English is my second language. So I want to be true to the sensibility of the two cultures. Well, yeah, I, I guess that after reading your poem Kane, that Punjabi was the language at home when you were growing up. And your parents immigrated to the UK from the Punjab in the 1950s, I think. You, uh, yeah, that's right. Sorry, a, a son of immigrants from India, but born in West London yourself. Um, I've interviewed writers who've told me they find comfort in hearing their first language around them, and, and if they don't have it around them, they've told me how much they miss hearing it. Is there a linguistic backdrop that, that you find particularly soothing? Well, um, um, that's really interesting because I think as I've got older, I feel more a sense of shame about my Punjabi in the sense that when I was a teenager, I realised my parents' Punjabi ability to speak Punjabi is really basic. Like, my mum never went to school. She can't read or write. My dad was a very macho wrestler. He was a champion wrestler. 
And it's just, I think it was about 12 or 13, we met some friend of the family at a wedding, and he's speaking Punjabi in a way that I couldn't quite understand some of the vocabulary, at which point I realised my parents have a very limited vocabulary. Um, so I'm really self-conscious about it. So I can speak it fluently, you know, the way a Punjabi would, with the accent and everything, because that, that was obviously my first language. And I would have learned English when I went to school when I was age five or six, that sort of age. Um, but I'm really aware that my vocabulary is really limited. So I don't really find great comfort in going back to Punjabi, which is awful, isn't it? So I know the words, uh, you know, the stock Punjabi words. And I was talking to someone recently from India, from a, a town, city, and she in in Punjab, and she's saying that we we find those village Punjabis quite amusing because they're Punjabi so old fashioned. And so she says we use many more Hindi words in our Punjabi now. You know the way more and more people use English words in in their languages. Now, so one example she gave is we in Punjabi we say door a door to open. We say bua. And in Hindi, they say Dervaza. Those people in the villages, they say Bua. And we find it hilarious, sounds so strange. Which it does, isn't it? I've sort of picked that example. It's a good one, isn't it? I have that a little bit in my own, my mum's Czech, and it's kind of Pathé Czech equivalent. And when we go back to Czech Republic, there's a lot of, you know, everyone crowds around us and says, listen to these people speak Czech. Like, it's so charming. and But it's quite patronising too. So I get that. It's really hard, isn't it? Because like, I, I talked in Prague at uh, TEFL, teaching English for about half a year, and I tried to learn some language really difficult. Yeah. But wasn't it? Because the tongue has to hit the top of the palate in there. Language without vowels. Yeah. Um, so interesting. That not, yeah, so difficult. That the English language, and even some, and the Punjabi language actually too, might, might have been a barrier for your parents. It's language and communication. But for you, it's got such purpose and offers freedom that's in one generation flat Delgia. i you know where does that confidence or chutzpah come from to play with a language that a language that your parents didn't really get to grips with yeah um i think when i was working my first book i fully expected to fail i mean i, I, I did a university degree in english i went at 21 you know to 24 then did an ma uh, at 25 i um, I, I, I did a bit of writing, but I assumed I'd fail, so I stopped. And in my early 30s, I started writing again. Um, but I just wrote for fun, assuming, okay, this is a hobby. I know people like me don't get published. I didn't really know poets of colour then. And then I sort of, in my early 30s, I, at some point in my 30s, I discovered Derek Walcott, Miniza Alvey, uh, you know, and some of the kind of Caribbean poets had come over to Britain. Uh, and that gave me confidence to sort of take it seriously. So I think a lot of the time, I was writing, I was writing with the purpose of being rejected. So I wrote absolutely freely as a hobby. And even when I tried to publish at first, I just tried a small publisher who said, uh, I wouldn't be able to do justice to your work. I think you should try a bigger publisher because I won't be able to send your book out to review. And it was really touching that somebody believed in it, but because I didn't believe in it. And, and then over time, you know, I got, got mentoring with a poet called Stephen Knight from Goldsmiths University. And he said, well, why don't you try a place like Faber? Uh, what's the worst that can happen? You get rejected. I remember having an argument saying, of course, it wouldn't take someone like me. Um, and then obviously, you know, he gave me the confidence, I think, to try even Faber. So all along, I just wanted to play. And I've tried to keep that spirit with each book. Each time I finish a book, I'll start listening to Miles Davis again. I listen to loads of Miles Davis to inspire me, you know, because he changed his styles all the time. 
and I don't want to write the same old thing. I try and really consciously think of it as a hobby again. I'm going to start and I'm just going to have the wildest time. I'm not going to try and be a career writer. And I think that's where Indian came from. I decided I'm not going to write 30 line poems anymore. Um, and it's one long um, dramatization of set of characters. It's like, almost like a verse novel. Um, but it was a kind of a, attempt not to write those sort of lyric poems. So for a couple of years, I was writing stuff and just rejecting it. And I thought I was finished. And then this book came along. And then COVID struck. We think of COVID in that crude binary, don't we? It's good and bad. I, I, mine obviously went very well. Nadia, what, what's, what, how old were you and, and when you first went to India? And, and what struck you about that first visit? Oh, yeah. So I think I was about five or six when I first went. And it was, you know, a village in northern India. There were no toilets. So you had to go out to the bushes. And there was kind of open sewers. Um, so if you look back on it, it feels very primitive. You know, and we in our village... We are named Nagra is Norgaj. Nagra is, is, is we're named after a nine meter man who's buried in a mosque, even though we're Sikhs, there's a mosque in the village. There's a nine meter bloody coffin there, massive, right? And we have a snake shrine that people pray to. And my parents pray, you know, they, they sort of do various rituals every weekend in England. So some of those things were made really real to me that you mustn't make fun of the nine meter man that you're named after or terrible things happen to you and uh, we have to pay homage to snakes every sunday little prayers uh, because they will come and get you you know look snakes look after you if you get well behaved but if they don't you know they'll wreak their evil on you and the family back in india do you know prayers at the temple and they take you know food and stuff to the snake shrine so it's like implausibly remote isn't it this world and you know my parents you know even when covid struck uh, my mum phoned me up i don't see them very often but she phoned me up she said you have to start praying to the chicken pox god because that's the only one that can save everyone of course so, there's you know, chicken so, pox god. yeah there's a chicken pox god which I, I didn't know about so i looked it up and there was one and she kind of rides a cockerel it's amazing there was some familiarity because of course you had these some of these rituals at your home in the uk before yeah. you arrived in Punjab, but did it feel impossibly remote at the age of five or six, or, or, or did it feel a bit like home? Oh, it's tricky, wasn't it? I think at that point, it felt, I think you just take everything in, don't you? And then coming, I remember coming, I do remember that flight coming back to England, I remember the concrete, everything looked grey, I didn't notice the difference. And, and I mean, also, I guess I would never talk about that world to my friend. I grew up in a completely white area. Uh, not far from south or west London, but it was a complete near Heathrow. But the area we lived in was completely white. So, so you kind of absorb those images of your childhood, of your background, but you don't share them with anyone apart from your cousins. But it felt, yeah, it felt really remote. Um, to some degree, I felt comfort in it because I had a good time there, fun uh, with my cousins out there. But it did feel completely remote because as soon as in, in west, west, you know, industrialised London. Um, there's no kind of link. And I didn't go back again for about um, 20 years after that. One of your poems, um, Prayer for Gurdwara, is from the collection British Museum. You wrote this. Our sacred langars from saffron evening to evening on the smoke of the stove to stave off the feel of the end of home. 
And if I've read that right, at the end of home, can the notion of home actually ever end? Because mm. we are constantly rebuilding homes, aren't we? But maybe there's this er home or the first home. And in a sense, I've got lots of good to our memories, you know, going to the Sikh temple, lots of memories, seeing weddings. And it felt a safe space, actually, as well, going to the, into the temple. And there's, you know, there's food there. And as cousins, we play around, when I was, you know, probably from the age of three, four, five. So that feels like a kind of first home. But it's not really home, literal home where you sleep or anything, but a kind of that metaphorical place where I could deposit my Indianness, and that felt safe there in the Gurdwara. But yeah, I think I mean I think one of my many homes is obviously poetry. That's probably my, uh, you know, I've got my home with my wife, children, and dog. Um, but that that home of poetry is really important to me. Sort of reading the poets and writing poetry that feels like a really invaluable home. I mean, talking of your your children, how how will it be say for for the next generation, the third generation? Um, compared to the second generation of immigrants, their connection to their grandparents' country. And then is that something that you want to foster? Do you, does it matter? Yeah. So I've got an old daughter from a kind of an old Indian arranged marriage. Uh, she's 29. So she understands some Punjabi, but she can't speak it. And my daughter, my wife, who's white English, um, they're 13 and 15. They don't speak any Punjabi. So I think that connection's lost with them, and they may want to investigate that as they get older. Um, but my older daughter, Isha, is 29. She's she's sees herself as British Indian much more. I mean, I'm not sure if my two daughters will, although they seem quite politicised and socially aware, and they see their identity, you know. Even at school, when you have to talk about you know, your background and stuff. So I, I think it would be a kind of mysticism for them, because... And I, I'm not even sure if they'd understand if I talked about this, like I'm talking about now, about snake gods. And they ask where our name comes from, Nagra, after an eye meter man. It just seems so remote, doesn't it? There's no connection with the industrial West, is there? It's hard to link the two. Yeah, it does. It feels and otherworldly. People in the village, you know the way people used to talk about Ireland in sort of 19th, 20th century, this sort of mysticism which really attracted people to go to Ireland. Very similar to that, I guess, is when you go to the villages, people have these magical stories. And one of my aunties used to be inhabited by a poltergeist. My but when my brother went over when he was about 15, she, she he saw it and she, you know, she transformed into this man. Uh, one of the ancestors was speaking through her. <laughs> you know, all this stuff happens in those villages where mysticism seems to be thriving it's fascinating for my children isn't it to hear some of that really intriguing it's i mean something I, that we've lost yeah well indeed and i and i wonder therefore if you're the lucky one the in-betweener having both identities or, or or is the next gen freer and thereby luckier i think there's be more of a bookish inhabitants of the world that i've sort of to some degree seen at first hand and some heard about you know, so the, the auntie who was inhabited by this, this one of the ancestors, my brother saw, but I didn't see that. But I, you know, I was inhabited by snakes, and I've seen nine meter man who's buried or the, the the body. And the, the story is, you know, you mustn't make fun of the nine meter man because these two Scandinavians came to measure the body at one time, apparently in the sixties, in the car, and they did all their scientific tests. As they drove out the village, you know what happened? The car crashed into a tree, and they both died. 
Of course, of course they did. <laughs> yeah, so people say, you know, be careful. You know, when I remember first went to the temple, uh, to the, the, the mosque to see the man, um, the you know, the tomb, everyone's saying, just be careful, don't smile, don't talk. This is really sacred, it's really special. I'm so worried I might do something silly or my brother might. <laughs> Do you, do you think you have that kind of migrant psyche, the kind of grab and dash, ready to run, or at least ready to roam? Mm. Or the, you know, the wandering seek is the cliche. Yeah, I think, I think one, of the, one of the things for me, that's a really interesting question, actually. I know it's one of the recurring ones, which is good, a good question to ask people, isn't it? Um, I think I have a great confidence in wanting to travel. I haven't done much traveling, but when I do, I feel really confident. Um, so that's one thing in it as being a tourist, but also um, I did do TEFL teaching for a while. So I think that was partly that feeling of um, I can up sticks. And, and if I found the right country to want to stay in, I probably would have. Um, but, you know, so that, that sense of things you inherit from your parents, because like in my case, my parents not educated and just move into a different country with nothing. Uh, it does give you power, doesn't it? You feel that you should be able to do that as well, rather than retrench so you know so one element of my background is the migrant psychology is just stay settled hunker down work hard we came here to make your life prosperous for you so don't muck about study get a job and settle down so there's that side to it as well of that migrant psyche so you take that on board a feeling of i want to get out i've got itchy feet i want to see things so they want extreme boringness for, for me say they wanted me to be a doctor that was all they cared about um, or then my brother ran one of my parents bought a shop. My brother ran it. Then they wanted to buy me a shop, and I refused to. And they were deeply upset that I wanted to go and do an English degree. You know, so they wanted that kind of boring, settled life of security because I guess they didn't really have it. Are you a failure then, Delgit? I'm very much so. I'm afraid. Yeah. I figured you might be. But I absorbed that twenty years ago. I really, I don't care. Being a poet is like, you know, that's not a done thing. In the villages, that's associated with drinking and baying at the moon and stuff like that. I, I want to go back to your first collection too. Look, we have coming to Dover, where you play up the tensions between Britain and India. Of course, that's often the role of the poet to charge these kinds of tensions. Um, chapter 36 begins with this. On affluent British baboos who treat everyone as mere coolies, on a bulldog who needs to accept the British Empire is over. Is there less to play up now, Dodger, than there was, say, when you were growing up? Oh, I think I think creatively, I think we're in a kind of new space entirely, a brand new space. I mean, I, I think kind of the issues that were from when I was growing up, racism and the, the binaries, both binaries around race, they've probably got deeper and more entrenched especially when we see politicians of colour who um, perform the kind of racist language. Um, so actually, we've got more room to play. Also, so I think there's more respect and acceptance of the play. So, so the stuff I was writing in my first book, I just assumed the small publisher would take it. I never imagined someone like Faye would take it, or that it would, you know, the book was reviewed on telly, on BBC Two Newsnight Review when it first came out, and, you know, sold massively. I wouldn't have expected that for this type of play uh, and this sort of experiment with language. So I think I think audiences out there are crying out for more play. I, th I think sometimes people think poetry should be earnest, sincere, from the heart, uh, you know, and that kind of straightforward language. But I think 
there are plenty of readers who want vigour, excitement, and somebody who's almost seems to be in a playground and looking all directions, being cheeky, being straight, uh, really playing around. And there's so much still to be fought for, but yeah. Yeah, I like that line. I'm sorry I talked over it. Um, in the same collection, there's a poem. You're making me think of a poem, um, Bibby and the Streetcar Wife. You refer to England in that as the flighty mix-up country, which could also be describing the language you write in, I think. Given what you, you've just said, how was it for your parents when they migrated to this flighty mix-up country and were faced with that age-old challenge of integration versus assimilation yeah it was i mean very difficult so in, in our house we had a three-bedroom semi-detached house near heathrow and there's always at least 10 people living there it was you know my two uncles lived there one of my grandmas um, on my the grandma on my mum's side my grandfather my dad's side my grandfather's brother and then quite often various um people passing through you know who sort of come over illegally and were sleeping on our floors um, and they all talked to, you know, I think they were really stoic. It wasn't in the culture to moan because you came here expecting difficulties. They, I don't think they came here for a land of milk and honey. For some reason, that wasn't the news they had when they first came over. They expected it to be tough and they just wanted to get on and work. So they did complain about, about being overlooked for promotion, say, in a factory or um, just the hard work, sheer hard work and, and the racism in the area. But I mean, my, my relatives are quite tough people, physically tough and fearless. So I don't think they were scared of the racism. Uh, I think they're aware that it was skinheads and teddy boys and you had to watch your, you know, where you walked. So they're really aware of that. Like there, you know, there, were, there was one pub where the Indians went and there were no kind of, the only people of colour were Indians in that, in that area. And the other pubs were white pubs. You didn't go in there. You would, apparently you would get attacked. And there were sort of stabbings on a regular basis. So I think they became really entrenched against white Englishness. They saw it as a, a place of uh, difficulty. Uh, you know, there, was, there were riots in Southall in, I think, 77, when William Whitelaw allowed um, the uh, National Front, really brutal racist regime, to hold their um, meeting in Southall Town Hall. And they, they obviously there weren't any white people there, but they want to do it there as a act of provocation. There's, you know, all Indian workers came out and they protested on the streets and it made the news and there was talk of these savages and the way they behaved. All my relatives were there at the protests. Yeah, it was all, you know, so there's that kind of humiliation, stuff like that, I think they experienced. So it's hard to win them over, you know, to, you know, say writing poetry in English and going to study an English degree, you can't really win people over to that because they became, I guess, embittered by their negative experiences here. I mean, that poem that you wrote in a white town, um, when you're speaking about your mum, she never looked like other boys' mums, you, you wrote. And um, one of the, the few of those lines were, I, I would have felt more at home had she hidden that illiterate body bumping noisily into women at the market bulging into its drama gossip. I mean, it's a poem full of color and, and exuberance, yet also pain. And I, is that how you dealt with that conflict in betweenness in your childhood? Or was it only in retrospect that you were able to handle it as deftly as that? 
Yeah, I think as a child, you kind of, you know, like I did, I, so that poem has some, some elements of truth in there about my own life, right? Um, so a lot of people didn't know where I lived. So, so if I was going to meet some friends to walk to school, I just, I would meet them somewhere. Uh, I didn't want them to know where I lived. And I didn't want to be associated with my parents in public, like down the road. Because, you know, a lot of kids would talk about things they'd done to the P word at the weekend and through letterboxes. And, you know, they, they did just literally say, but you're all right, Dalge, you're one of us. You know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's really hard. It's it's a kind of, it's a very scary, you have to have wits about you the whole time um, and how you coped. And I had to take a lot of racist abuse in school, around the streets where people just call you things and pretend you hadn't heard it, just walk on. Um, so, I mean, I just got, I got through it with a kind of feeling a humour about it all. I felt that. I mean, I felt that also in your writing, which is, you know, that there were times I kind of saw this poster child in the playground and the butt of racist jokes who employs humour in, in a kind of court jester kind of way to offset the bullying. And, and your way, Delgit, is sharp and it's it's haunting and there's pathos in, in some of your works, but there's also defiance. And, and yeah, yeah is, is that balance something that comes easily in the moment of writing? Or do you find yourself having to kind of double check and second guess and reread like you were saying earlier about how you don't want people just to switch off because you're having a moan but you know you want to keep them engaged yeah i think what, what you do in life is to engage people uh even though you think they might not like you because your color or your background and in the same way you probably do that in your poetry i mean i think that's what usually happens well you know i had lots of like friends one or two friends parents would say oh um, they'll just say racist things to me. One, one mum would say, you're, you're a bad one, I can tell. You're going to be trouble, things like that. And I was just like a, a geeky kid, you know, going around to my friends' houses. So I would just try and be funny and charm people. Uh, I think it's the only way you can survive and it's the only way you can help other people cope with you. And I think you have to do that in your writing as well. You have to help people cope with you. Um, who might not want to read you and I still feel that you know um, like say we walk our dog I, I feel like the older white people in the park um, they don't really want to know what I think about anything they don't want to know my views or what, what I feel about things you know and I'm not sure if they always want to listen to me so I, I just go in the background and I was very good at doing that at school you kind of find your way in the background so you wouldn't get um, picked on also you know you're not know people don't want to really listen to you um, but in poetry it seems to work, which is amazing. So, so in Indium, the director and camera operator documenting the poetry recitals at one point say to each other, know thy blighty, know thy blighty. And blighty, a nickname for Britain during the colonial rule of India comes from the Urdu word vilayati, which means foreign. I, I, sense, I sense you know your blighty, Daljit. I mean, you're outwriting everyone right now. But I um I wanted to ask if you feel if you know thy India. Oh cheeky. I do not know my India at all well enough. So I would say I I've done quite a lot of work on the Ramayana and Mahabharata, but you could sort of throw that back at me and say, well, doesn't every poet, you know, it's just that's almost like a cliche. Um, well, I think one of the things I've done is sort of got back into my Indian literature, like the epics and the Indian poet, as a way of retrieving something of value about India for me, something that I can engage with at a very serious level, in the way that I can't say with my parents or some of my relatives. 
Um, like a lot of my cousins don't read. And obviously my parents' generation um, couldn't read. Um, so for me to find the Ramayana, Mahabharata, um, in this book I mentioned this in Ezekiel and Indian, various South Indian poets, that's been really exciting for me, a kind of proper connection. That feels like a home as well for me. A home. When, so when I think of my name, Dalvit Nagra, my skin colour, I can connect that to not necessarily my parents, but more to Mahabharata, Ramayana, and those sort of Indian poets. Because I think, well, that, that's what I want to see myself in terms of. That I come through them, partly. And 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 does that also make you? I mean, you talked about travel and movement earlier. Does that make you want to see more of India, or actually more of somewhere else, and or anywhere else? Yeah, I think one more of everything. But I would like to see in classic India still. And I've been back my wife Catherine a few times before we had the children. It's obviously a bit harder now. But that's something I still want to do. I want to sort of go to some of the places uh, that the myths refer to. I'd love to see those. But also as a global citizen of, of the world, I want to see anything and everything and respect it all and learn other myths and other stories. So in that sense, well, hopefully we're all equally curious, aren't we, at bringing about these other homes into our lives. It'd be tragic, wouldn't it, if we lived the whole life and absorbed so little of, of, the, of the planet, of the myths of the world. All the contemporary yeah. stories. Imagine that you were just sitting in a town next to Heathrow Airport, but never going to Heathrow Airport. Yeah, but it does happen for a lot of people. You get so bogged down in the day job, but it's really hard, isn't it? You True. get can't you lost you lost you lose the bigger vision, don't you? Sometimes. Yeah, let's remind each other of that. Um, yeah. Finally, Delja, I, I know Indium's only just out and um best wishes with it but it probably means you finished it not yesterday or, or last week can you tell me anything um about what you're working on now uh I've, I'm, so i've abandoned writing 30 line poems completely so my next book is another experimentally kind of big verse novel which is sort of semi-funny or trying to be funny a bit like indian so this I've, i'm calling it at the moment my working title is straight bananas you know, straight bananas, which is part of the uh, lie for Brexit, that you want everyone to have straight bananas. So I start using that as a, almost as an idiom in the book for deception and lying, that the people are talking straight bananas. So I'm partly trying to imagine the self existing on internet after death, almost, as an internet entity and what that must feel like. And also thinking about finding new ways to think about how you can write about the environment rather than just writing about the environment, but sort of thinking about ideas. So I've sort of been going back to early 20th century writers, um, you know, the, the poets, Elia, um, Sassoon, um, you know, or George Orwell, there's a whole kind of a Bloomsbury group. There's a whole group of really thinking about that they need to be micro communities, um, producing their own little crops and food and veg and stuff, and how we get back to that. So there's a whole thinking about that, that sustainability was going to come to an end. So they were, they were anticipating that about 100 years ago. So I want to sort of look at their ideas again and sort of build those into my writing as well. It's really interesting, isn't it? People were, and obviously, as we all know, people were anticipating all sorts of things, but there was a move towards a local sustainable communities, which sounds quite boring, but <laughs> politically it sounds great, doesn't it? So I just need to get a library, do some research on that period, see what the poets are thinking on the ground, some of the writers that period. It's really interesting, isn't it? 
Yeah. It's... So if you find anything, Michelle, pass it on to me. Okay. But... Yeah. I mean, I, I think you probably outread me and I feel like I'm a pretty good reader. I can know that oh, from yeah. cultural references, but um, tell you what is, you've been very generous telling me about um, what's coming actually. As, oh, a lot of writers are very secretive about that. So I'm grateful to um, hear what's what's next and, and, and look forward to reading it. Oh, thank you. Nagra, thank you very much for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. Pleasure, thank you for your brilliant questions, Michelle. And my thanks to the support of this podcast, Abercrombie and Kent. Goodbye.